Welcome to this Uvula Audio presentation of Sea Gold by John Blaine. Volume 5. Chapter 9. The Warning. Tom Blakely paced the floor of the Quonset hut. Doug straddled a chair and looked at the boys, who sat on one of the bunks. The young engineer's face was grave as he nodded agreement with what Tom was saying. All right. You say you looked the plant over thoroughly and nothing was damaged but the fractionator panel? You know what I think? Damaging the panel was an afterthought. Doug started in. But that means... Yeah, Tom stated harshly. This business tonight wasn't aimed at the plant at all. If the damage had been all that they were after, they wouldn't have turned on the pump, and they would have systematically ruined everything in sight. He stopped pacing and faced the two boys. What do you know that makes you dangerous to anyone? Rick stared at him wide-eyed. Scotty's jaw dropped. Nothing, Rick replied. What makes you ask that? Well, it adds up, Tom said grimly. This business tonight was an attempt on your lives. It wasn't intended to be anything else. I'm sure that the wrecking of the panel was an afterthought. Well, if anyone wanted to get you out of the way, can't be because of your value to the plant. Otherwise, they would have gone after Doug or me. So you must be dangerous because you know something. I can't think of any other reason. Neither can I, Doug agreed. So I'm firing both of you. You're staying here tonight with us and leaving for Spindrift first thing in the morning. Rick found his voice. But you can't send us away. Yes, we can, Tom said flatly. We'd rather junk the whole plant than have you risk your lives by staying here. You're fired. That's final. And despite the boys' protests, the partners were adamant. There may not even be jobs for much longer anyway, Tom pointed out. If Carstairs refuses to give us the processing units, we'll have to fold, because we can't pay cash for them. Our investigation of the books tonight showed us that we're on thin ice. We can pay the workmen from Bridgeford for about a week's work. So turn in, both of you, Doug ordered. Tom and I are going to stand guard the rest of the night. Rick saw from the stubborn set of Doug's jaw that he wasn't fooling. Both boys had gotten out of their wet clothes before the partners arrived and were wrapped in blankets. Okay, Scotty said resignedly. Rick lay awake for a long while, thinking things over. He decided it would be best to return to Spindrift without argument. Then they would return on Monday as though nothing had happened. He hoped that by then the plant would be humming with imported workmen and the partners would be too busy to worry. But there was something else. Something about their being locked in the fractionator. He tried to puzzle out what it was that had bothered him. But he was too tired to think clearly. Those long minutes working at the lock had taken plenty out of him. Out of Scotty, too, to judge by the deep breathing on the other bed. Rick turned on his side and bunched his pillow up comfortably and went to sleep. The boys awoke to full daylight and the appetizing aroma of bacon and eggs. Tom was playing chef. He greeted them cheerfully. Doug's out looking at the fractionator. Rise and shine and get this chow into you. Then clear out. Your paychecks are on the desk. The boys dressed quickly in clothes that were dry, but wrinkled and uncomfortable.
By the time they had eaten, Doug had returned. Well, the panel's a total loss, he reported. But fortunately, I have the necessary parts to build it over again. Guess I'll just start right away. I suppose we'd better be going, Rick said meekly. We'll have to go to the hotel and pick up our bags. Are you all right? Tom asked. Able to fly? I'm right as a trivet, Rick grinned. Whatever a trivet is. When will we see you again? When the plant is operating, Doug answered. We'll come to Spindrift, if we may. Well, you'll always be welcome there, Rick assured him. They shook hands all around and the boys left. At the gate, they bumped into Tony, who looked at them sharply and growled a greeting. Seeing Tony reminded me, Rick said as they hiked into town. I knew last night there was something queer about our being locked in. It was the pump. Remember how you couldn't start it and Tony had to? Scotty stopped short. Yeah, you're right. I thought of something, too. Who knew that we'd be there alone? Tony? But we don't have any evidence against him, Rick objected, remembering what Tom had said. Anyone who knew something about engines could have started the pump. You could have once you'd seen that the choke didn't work. Sure, Scotty agreed. And Cooner or Lewis could have seen Tom or Doug leave the plant. They would have guessed we were alone. They were silent for a moment and then Rick spoke up. That's a whole lot of coincidences, though. I don't believe in coincidences, Scotty agreed. But we have to have something more definite on Tony before we can accuse him. Well, we could keep an eye on him, Rick said. And we can tell Doug and Tom what we suspect. Captain Galt was at his desk when they returned to the lobby. Well, he exclaimed, I'll be tarnal blamed if it ain't the two prodigal sons. Where were you last night? We stayed at the plant, Rick said. Captain, is Fred Lewis around? The old man's bright eyes narrowed. Now it's funny you should ask that. He checked out last night. Didn't say where he was going. Thanks, Scotty said grimly. Well, goodbye, Captain. We'll see you on Monday. Don't know why you pay for a room, Captain Galt said tartly. You don't use it none to speak of. It's a place to leave our clothes, Rick said, grinning. So long, Captain. Funny Lewis should leave just then, Rick said as they headed back toward the plant, almost as though he wanted to get out of town before we were found dead in the fractionator. Maybe that's just why he checked out. Do we stop in and say goodbye to the partners? Sure. As they approached the Quonset hut, they suddenly heard Tom's voice. He was almost yelling and he sounded angry. Well, let them threaten us. We'll get police protection and I'll carry a sawed-off shotgun if I have to. Tony can do the same. The boys broke into a run as they barged into the Quonset hut. The partners and Tony looked up. You were supposed to be on your way home, Tom said. We're going. Rick assured him. What's up? A message Tony found tacked on the fence a few minutes ago, Doug said. You called the police about it, and we're going to tell them about what happened to you last night. It's time we stop trying to fight our battles alone. Tom silently held up a placard on which was printed in bold letters, If you try to import workers, the outraged citizens of Crayville will fight.
Chapter 10 Cooner's Raid It was with mixed feelings that Rick landed the cub on the beach on Monday morning. He had assured Scotty that the partners would let them stay because they would be so busy they wouldn't have time to argue. Inwardly, he wasn't so sure. And then, by returning to Crayville, they were walking into the enemy's territory again. If they knew the identity of the enemy, they could guard themselves. But who was he? They had talked over the problem a dozen times during the weekend without coming to any satisfactory conclusion. They hiked up to the road and walked briskly toward the plant. Rick wiped moist palms on his handkerchief. Tom and Doug couldn't make them leave. They had to be in at the finish. Doug was leaning against the plant gate, and two burly guards were with him. And where do you think you two are heading? Doug asked. To work, Rick replied with more confidence than he felt. Not here. Listen, you beavers. Haven't you got any sense? You just climb back in that kite and get out of here. How do you think Tom and I would feel? We would hate to attend your funerals. Oh, come on, it's not that bad, Scotty said. No, except for the minor miracle of Rick carrying a scout knife, you'd be needing a funeral right now. Don't forget that. We'll be safe. We'll stick close to the plant, and we won't get into a corner. Please, Doug. How about the night time? You gonna sit up all night with shotguns on your knees, are you? We'll be all right as long as there are people around, Scotty insisted. I suppose so, Doug said. But there won't be people around after working hours, and we haven't got room to put you up in that hut. Rick saw that the young engineer was weakening. Okay, how about if we go back to Spindrift at night? How about that? He suggested swiftly. I'll think about it, Doug said. Anyways, you could come in and have breakfast with me. To the guards, he added. You fellas can knock off now. I'll see you tonight. In the Quonset hut, he grinned at them. Tom will break my neck, but I have to admit, it's nice having you guys around. If you go home at night, I suppose it'll probably be all right. We will, Scotty assured him. Gosh, Doug, thanks. I was sure you wouldn't even let us in the place. Where's Tom? Me and Tony went to Bridgeport to pick up the men. We rented a couple of trucks. They should be here soon. Rick took a seat on a bunk. Anything exciting happen over the week? Nothing much. We rechecked the pump last night and I got the fractionator panel rebuilt. If everything goes smoothly from now on, we may make out. By the way, Carstairs agreed to let us have the fractionators Friday afternoon. We had to sign a demand note. But we figured that was all right. What's a demand note? Scotty asked. Payable on demand. Our other notes were dated ahead. This one comes due when they ask for the money. They're just protecting themselves, I suppose. Still. Did you call the police? Rick asked. Yeah, they're standing by to escort the trucks here. Tell Doug about Tony, Scotty said. What about Tony? Doug asked quickly. Rick outlined their suspicions, mentioning the difficulty of starting the engine and adding that apparently only Tony knew they would be alone at the plant that night. Of course, we haven't got any proof, but it looks queer, he finished. What do you know about Tony, anyway? Not much, Doug agreed. 
Still, he's worked hard for us, and I'd hate to believe he'd have any part in a thing like this. Don't say anything to him, Rick suggested. We'll all keep an eye on him. Doug nodded, then stood up as the sound of a truck engine broke the stillness outside the hut. They must be coming now. They reached the gate just as the truck driven by Tom turned in, escorted by a state police trooper on a motorcycle. Not a bit of trouble, the trooper called, but we'll take no chances. A couple of men will meet your trucks tonight at five. Doug thanked him and he rode off as the other truck came through the gate, driven by Tony. Tom parked his truck and got out, and he started with surprise as he saw the two boys. Rick caught sight of a big blonde worker leaping from the truck, and he grabbed Scotty's arm. Listen, isn't that the big guy we saw in Zuki's that first day we landed? Scotty moved past a few workmen for a clearer look. The same one, he agreed. Say, do you think? We better find out, Rick said. He took Doug aside and rapidly told him of seeing the big man at the restaurant where they had first seen Cooner. Doug beckoned to Tom and the four of them faced the big man. He was not very old, and he was built like an athlete. Under his jacket, he wore the same red shirt the boys remembered. We've seen you before, Rick stated, in Zuki's, a couple of Sundays ago. White teeth flashed in an engaging grin. Hey, you got good memories, I think. You remember Mike Kozak, eh? Well, Mike, you remember you too. You almost have to fight with that fat man, hey? What were you doing in Crayville? Scotty demanded. Where do you live? Tom's question followed at once. The big man's candid blue eyes were puzzled. I got a gal in Crayville. I come here maybe two or three times a week. Me, I live in Bridgeport. And the employed man, he say, who wants to work Crayville? So I think, by golly, I take this job and maybe see my Carlotta. She's a nice gal, that Carlotta. Maybe we get married. I like this job. We see. Sounds reasonable, Doug said. Rick liked the blonde giant's looks. He had a wide, friendly grin, and he didn't look as though he was capable of doing anyone any meanness. I think he's okay, he agreed. I think you're okay, too, Mike Kozak said amiably. Well, why we wait? Where's this work we do, hey? Tony, Doug called. Let's get moving here. Take ten of these men. Start the new foundations with the pressure domes. I've marked them out. You know what's wanted. Now which of you men are carpenters? We asked for ten. A group of men stepped forward. You got your tools? And the trucks? Great. Get them. Come with me. Doug inspected the remaining twenty men, then beckoned to Kozak. Kozak, I'm making you the straw boss. We want this fence torn down and the board stacked over by those tanks. Don't damage the lumber any more than you can help. You'll find pinch bars, crowbars, and hammers in the Quonset hut. You think you can handle it? Kozak's grin flashed. He's a lead pipe cinch. Come on, you strong guys. Tearing down is more easy than build. Things began to hum then. The boys found themselves abandoned and had to hurry after Doug for instructions. He got the carpenters started on building the chemical platforms and roofing over the sediment tanks, then led the boys to a corner of the Quonset hut where a number of boxes were stacked. These are the chemical nozzles. You'll find them packed in cosmoline. They'll have to be cleaned. Cosmoline? Scotty groaned. 
I thought I was through with that when I got out of the Marines. What's Cosmoline? Rick asked. It's a preservative. Stuff is disgusting. Gummy is tar and stubborn as glue. We'll have to use gasoline to get it off. Rick found out that Scotty hadn't exaggerated. Cleaning the nozzles was a messy, aggravating job, and the gasoline fumes made his head ache. He suggested taking the job outdoors, and Scotty readily agreed. Outside, they found the fence vanishing at a miraculous rate. Already one full side, the one toward town, was gone, uprights and all. It looked strange to see the town across the fields of bunch grass and scrub growth. The carpenters were working rapidly now. They had one platform partially completed. A second group was putting up the uprights that would support the roof over the tank. Two men did nothing but examine the boards that Mike's men brought, take out the nails and select those to be used, and pass them up to the other carpenters. Tom came and scowled at them. So, Doug softened up, did he? But don't think you're getting away with anything. I'll have my eye on you. He winked and went into the hut. They heard him humming as he began his paperwork. What a great pair, Rick said. Yep, Scotty agreed. Swell guys, both of them. Listen, are we actually going home tonight? Well, I guess we're going to have to. Besides, it's probably the smart thing to do. They were quiet for a time as they worked at the brown, gummy preservative. The pile of clean, shining nozzles was growing. They were making progress. Funny, the fishermen didn't try to interfere with the trucks, Scotty said at last. Maybe they didn't want to buck the police, Rick replied absently. Could be. But say, how would they know the police would be there? Scotty asked, puzzled. That hadn't occurred to Rick. He thought it over. Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe it was a bluff. If it was, Cooner fell down on the job. Maybe Tony tipped him off. Oh, right, Rick said. If Tony... Watch it, Scotty warned and pointed. The fence in front of the plant was vanishing board by board. Mike Kozak was walking over toward them, where his crew was working. Pretty fast, hey? He grinned. Mike Kozak is one good worker, like I told you. We believe it, Rick said. Mike sat down and mopped his face. This is a funny place. What do they make here anyway, eh? All kinds of things. The big man pointed toward the secret vault. Hey, what's in there, huh? Maybe money? Maybe, Rick answered shortly. You'll have to ask the boss, Scotty said. I ask already. He don't know too, Mike yawned. The boys laughed as he went back to his gang. That is some accent, Rick remarked. What is that? Slav? French? I can't tell. Scotty grinned. Little everything, I guess. Tom came out of the hut, consulting his watch. Knock off, you beavers. It's time for chow. Pass the word, will you? It didn't seem possible that the morning had gone so fast, but Rick's appetite told him that it had. He and Scotty ran to the various working groups, passing the word that it was noontime. Doug looked displeased. Well, if we have to eat, I suppose we just have to. Okay, fellas, break out the lunches. Doug walked back to the hut with the boys. I hate to take time out even to eat. Oh, well, I shouldn't complain. Everything's going like clockwork. You hungry? Rick grinned. 
Scotty is. And you're not, of course, no hungrier than a starving wolf, Scotty said derisively. We'll break out that can of beans I've been saving, Doug suggested. Bean sandwiches. Best indigestion breeders I ever invented. Tom had already put the coffee pot on and was opening the beans. Bread and butter and a can of pickles were on the table. If the goblins don't get you, the chow will, Doug said cheerfully. Outside, the workmen were sitting down to their lunches. They seemed to be a good-natured crew, Rick thought. They seemed to take their cue from Big Mike Kozak. Start making sandwiches, Tom invited. If you're really hungry, you'll find cold meat in the icebox. That's more like it, Doug exclaimed. A voice outside the door demanded, Where's them two boys, the young ones? Rick started. Hey, listen, that's Captain Galt. He hurried to the door and called, In here, Captain. The old man looked hot and uncomfortable. He pulled open the screen door and glared at them. Well, what you waiting for? Ain't you gonna fight? Fight? Tom spoke past a mouthful of sandwich. Fight who? I reckon I know you wouldn't be awake. The fishermen, the captain snorted. That's who. They're getting worked up down at Zuki's and they'll be here for long. Kuno's leading them. And they're mad as heck. I'll tell you, man. Killing mad on account of the oyster beds. They've been poisoned. Rick spoke out in stunned silence. Captain, are you sure about that? Sure? Of course I'm sure. Now don't say you ain't been warned. Captain Galt turned and stomped out. Doug jumped into action. He picked up the phone and demanded state police headquarters. The connection took only a minute. He explained rapidly what was coming and asked for aid. Be there in 15 minutes, the police officer said. That was that, Doug said as he hung up. He went to the door and called. Hey, Tony, get the workman up here. Hurry it up. Tom hurried out and called back. I'll keep an eye up the road. How'd they find out the oyster beds have been poisoned? Scotty demanded. There's no R in June. Oysters ain't in season. That business of oysters not being in season when there's no R in the month doesn't mean anything on the coast, Rick said. People around here eat oysters anytime they want. Anyway, the only reason that stuff was started was about not eating oysters during the summer months because they spoiled in the heat. We have refrigeration now, he broke off and pointed. Here come the workmen. The workers gathered before the Quonset hut, waiting curiously for what Doug had to say. When they were all clustered around, he spoke to them. Men, we just had word that the Crayville fishermen are coming to wreck the plant. They claim the oyster beds have been poisoned. Maybe they have, but it sure as heck wasn't by us. If you stay here, it means a fight, probably a tough one. I'd like to offer you bonuses to stay and fight, but the plant just hasn't the money. Whatever you decide to do will be all right, though. The men were quiet for a moment, looking at each other as though in silent question. Then Mike Kozak stepped forward. Mr. Boss, he said quietly, no one runs Mike Kozak off a job. I don't care how many fishers is coming. They come, they find Mike, and I have a big club in my hand, you bet. The carpenter stepped to Mike's side. He's talking for me, too. I'm sticking. Rick glanced at Tony. The foreman was watching, his face impassive. The other workers stepped forward, too, 
all talking at once. They agreed with Mike. Nobody was running them off their new jobs. Only Tony hung back. Doug Chambers called out. How about you, Tony? The foreman shook his head. You pay me to work, not to fight. I don't want no part of it. Scotty took a half step toward him, and Rick saw his friend's dislike of the dark man coming to the surface. Timid, Tony, or don't you want to fight your friends? The foreman's hands came up. You don't talk to me like that, kid. I'll beat your ears down. Well, great, start beating, Scotty said cheerfully. Doug stepped between them. That's enough, you two. Tony, it's your privilege to decide for yourself. But if our only old hand runs off while the new men stay, I don't think that leaves me much choice. I'll make out your check right now. The workers scattered as Tony and Doug went into the hut. Rick saw them hefting pieces of two-by-four. Some of them picked up the steel pinch bars with which they had torn down the fence. Better find something to swing with, Scotty advised. Those fishermen won't be using powder puffs. He found a club and handed it to Rick. I'll use this, he said, unbuckling his belt. Scotty always wore a marine belt with a heavy brass buckle. Now he wound it around his hand, leaving the buckle hanging free. It made a lethal weapon. Scotty gave Rick a strained grin. I won't be swinging, except in self-defense. you got to remember that these fishermen have been lied to and stirred up. They're acting honestly, according to their way of thinking. My sentiments exactly, said Doug from behind them. Rick turned and saw that Tony was leaving the plant, cutting across the field. Good riddance, he thought. Doug hailed the workmen and they crowded around. They were all armed. We don't want any trouble, Doug said. If they want to fight, let him start it. And try not to get too rough. We're only defending our property. We want no unnecessary violence. Tom arrived out of breath. They're coming, he said, down the road. There must be 50 of them. And Cooner Stoles is in the lead. I recognize him from Rick's description. The body of the workmen moved toward what had been the front gate of the plant. Doug, Tom, and the boys in the lead. Glancing up the road, Rick saw a phalanx of roughly dressed men walking slowly toward them. They were carrying what appeared to be baseball bats. Both groups were silent as the fishermen advanced and then the marching gang of townsmen reached the plant, and the two bodies of men faced each other. Cooner Stoles, his face redder than ever, a wicked-looking billy club in his hand, stepped forward. Your plan's gonna get wrecked. We don't want to hurt anybody, but we're aiming to break this thing up once and for all. You poisoned our oyster beds and ruined the living for some of us. The oysters are all green and they're dying, so step aside, we're coming in. Not so fast, Doug stepped forward to meet him. We didn't poison those beds. We're not even operating yet. We heard your pump last night. We know you're lying. Behind Cooner, the fisherman growled angrily. Mike Kozak came out of the group of plant workmen. It's you who lies, Cooner, he said flatly. You've been pumping these men full of lies for weeks. I done heard you. This plant don't poison nothing. And what you care about the oyster beds anyway, you cheap, rotten, good for nothing. You never do a good day's work as long as you live anyway. Rick took a deep breath. Cooner's face was scarlet, the veins standing out on it. 
Don't you say that to me. I don't say it and I mean it, Mike said. He addressed the fisherman now. You honest men, you work. Why listen to this cooner guy? You bunch of fools. When he ever tell the truth, I ask you not once. You believe him now, huh? You are stupids. There was a low murmur from the fisherman. For a moment, Rick felt hopeful. Mike's words made sense to them. Just give him time to think. But Cooner didn't. With a wild yell, he flunked himself on Mike Kozak. Mike's big fist lifted and caught Cooner square on the jaw, lifting him bodily, throwing him back into the ranks of the fishermen. But the Crayville men were already charging forward. The possibility of peace had vanished with Cooner's act. For a heartbeat, the press of men held Cooner's stools upright. Then they surged by, and he fell face down in the road. When Big Mike hit anyone, they stayed hit. The two groups surged toward each other, yelling. For a moment, Rick stood hesitant. Then a fisherman jumped at him, club raised. All around him, there was the shock of man meeting man, club meeting club. The fight to save the sea mine plant was on.